It is so good to see all of you this morning and to be worshiping together with God's people. Let me invite you, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to John chapter 13. We'll begin this chapter this morning. There, there was a time, some time ago now, many years ago now, when God chose to clothe himself in humanity and dwell among us for a time and walk among us. We've been hearing about that in the first 12 chapters of John's gospel now for some time. Uh, he has been astounding the world with his teaching. He's been speaking, teaching like no one ever taught before. He's been repeatedly doing things that were humanly impossible to do. Everybody is talking about this. It has turned the world upside down. So that as he enters Jerusalem, even those who hate him stand and watch this in fury and have to say to one another, look, you see, we're gaining nothing. The whole world has gone after him. It's an amazing experience and one full of a display of God's glory. And yet, despite the glory that is pervading the whole situation, very few are truly willing to trust him as they're encountering him. Few are truly willing to entrust themselves to him. And now that chapter 12 is done, as we read in verse 36 then, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So as we pick this study back up, his public ministry is over. And with a few notable exceptions, the number that he has gathered around himself is 12. He is the king of all creation. The stars sing his praises in outer space. And as he walks among those whom he created in his image, his own did not receive him. This is the summary that John gave us that we were to expect in the first chapter. And now he's finished his public ministry, and we see things as they are. But we are hopefully by now protected from some mistaken reactions we might have as we look at things as they lay. For example, we should be safe, I hope, from thinking... <clears throat> that Jesus is caught off guard by this poor response, uh, that Jesus is, is offended in terms of his expectations not having been met. We should be protected from that reaction, I hope, because we've seen very clearly that he is walking the earth in complete control over the situation. Complete control, down to the very timing of everything that is happening he is fully aware that the number of those around him, the number of those he has ever encountered as he walked this earth with the natural will to entrust themselves to him isn't 12, but zero. He's told them this. We've heard him say, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We've seen enough to know that the number 12 is not the best that Jesus could do. It is, in fact, an intentional number, even a symbolic number. Think of the 12 tribes of Israel 
the promises that Jesus is going to make to these 12 concerning authority to come. Jesus is bothered by unbelief in terms of the evil of it and the destructive nature of it. But it is not injuring his hopes or plans. Not at all. And so when we come into chapter 13 this morning and we see Christ turn his attention exclusively upon his own, as he's going to, as they'll be called in verse 1. It shouldn't surprise us that we don't find in our Lord any anxiety or discouragement or frustration. We don't find those things. What do we find? That's the question that I would have us answer this morning. What do we find as now Christ turns his attention exclusively onto his own in loving preparation? This is going to span the next five chapters. And just keep in mind, in this, this interaction with his disciples that spans these five chapters, when he's finished with this discourse with them, he'll get up and lead them into the Garden of Gethsemane for his arrest. This is how much we're at the end. So what do we find as he turns his attention to them? For reasons that I, I hope will be clear, I would say that the question is in fact the one that John is intending us to ask as we come into this chapter. It's what he wants us to have our minds on as we walk through the doorway of chapter 13. What do we find as Christ turns his attention onto his own? And the answer, you could put it very simply and you would completely satisfy what we're about to see. The answer is, we find love. We find love. That word is the answer in a way that's abundantly clear, both by how John's going to open the farewell discourse this morning, and by what our Lord actually says in it. So just consider this before we read our text here. Up to now, we're 12 chapters in. In chapters 1 to 12, John's gospel, we've seen it all over the place. It has been especially marked by two words, the word life and the word light. Have we seen that over and over again? Life, words occurring 50 times in those 12 chapters, and light 32 times. In chapters 13 to 16, life will show up six times and light will not show up at all. The focus is changing. What about love? Love, love words showed up six times in chapters one to 12, and love will show up 31 times in chapters 13 to 17. Just hearing that, even before we go to those places and hear what is said about those things, it should give us a clue that love is about to become prominent. And what we need to, to see this morning is that love suddenly becomes prominent. It is no coincidence. In the very moment where Christ turns his attention exclusively onto his own to prepare them. His turning to his people is fundamentally seen in a great outpouring of his love. And I would suggest to you that that should be precious to us this morning. And for a couple of reasons. One is because of the way that it reminds us 
And don't we need to be reminded of this so often? That our Lord is fundamentally for us as his people. Paul asked the question in Romans 8, if if God is for us, who can be against us? And the way that Christ turns to his own now in these chapters displays the fact that he is for us. Here in the farewell discourse, his disciples have so far to go. (laughs) We're going to see that. It's it's clear in all of the Gospels, but it'll be clear here as well. They have so far to go here on this eve of the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet Christ's love pours out to them. He does not resent his own. And while our sin can and does impact in space and time the quality of our relationship with our God, we can grieve the Spirit of God. Yet our sin does not and cannot impact the reality of the loving nature of that relationship. That's one reason that this should be precious to us this morning, what we're going to see. The second reason is that chapters 13 to 17 are not five chapters describing a big hug that Jesus gives to his disciples. That's not how he recounts the outpouring of Christ's love for his own. Instead, they are, they are chapters full of actions and words from our Lord, which means we're about to get a firsthand view of what it actually looks like for Christ to love us. We'll get to see what kind of love it is. We'll get to see what true love actually looks like concretely as he turns his attention to his own. We just begin to see all of this this morning. We'll start by reading together the first 11 verses of John 13. And as I read, I expect you'll already begin to hear how love is going to characterize even these opening verses of this farewell discourse. Let me preview for you what you should hear here. The love of Christ is portrayed here very dramatically. I'm going to use the word dramatically in our outline. The first four verses we're going to read, we hear John dramatically describe the love that is going to be poured out by Christ. Verses four to five, we're going to see Jesus dramatically portray it. And then verses six to 11, in a very instructive passage, we're going to hear Peter dramatically misunderstand this love that is being shown. This is what we'll see this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? The Gospel of John, chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments 
and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Excuse me. Simon Peter said to him, Excuse me. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me repeat the three points that will be our outline for this morning. And let me clarify, too, when I use the word dramatically, I don't intend to be using that word negatively. I simply mean that this is a very deliberate thing. In all three of these instances, the person is going big in what they're doing. In terms of this display of Christ's love, verses 1 to 4, John will dramatically describe it. In 4 to 5, Jesus will dramatically portray it. And in verses 6 to 11, Peter will dramatically misunderstand it. This is what we'll see. Let's begin first with the author, with John himself. In terms of how he describes this turning of Jesus' attention onto his disciples. I mean, how did he write this? How did he explain it? And he, he starts with two really big sentences. This is how he chooses to start. Verse 1 is all a single sentence. Let me reread it and ask yourself as you're hearing this, what's the value of a sentence like this? What's the reason for it? This is what he begins with. He said, now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. How does that serve as an opening in this great transition passage? And what we find is that it accomplishes a number of things for us. If you think about what he's worded this as here, this ties Jesus' hour, the end goal of his coming, to the Passover, doesn't it? Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. There's going to be something about the Passover celebration and its significance that Christ has been waiting for. And that as this draws near, now that his work is finished, this is when he knows that his hour has come. It tells us that. It also tells us, this first sentence, That what Jesus is about to do is going to be done out of the awareness that he is soon to leave these disciples. It said, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, 
And this is given as a preface to what is just about to come. So he's about to act with his imminent departure in mind. That tells us that. Thirdly, it tells us that whatever it is that he's about to do out of his awareness that he's going to leave, whatever's going to come from that is going to be a display of his love for his disciples. When Jesus knew that his hour had come, it says, he loved them to the end. And then immediately during supper, and here we go. Right? So this tells us what is coming is coming as a display of Jesus' love for them in view of the fact that he's about to leave them. Now, some of that is further given to us in the second sentence here. This is already giving us some context for how we're going to understand the washing. But now add to it the next piece. And it's, it's a second big sentence. So his opening here is just two gigantic sentences. The second one's even bigger than the first one was. Starts in verse 2 and goes all the way into verse 4. And I really appreciate the ESV. It's not the only translation that does it, but I'm thankful that it keeps all of this as the single sentence that it is. So let me read the second sentence here. And again, hear this and try to wrap your mind around this as a single sentence. And we need to reflect on what he's doing here. This is a big one. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. It's a big one. I brought that one home with me last week, one evening, and at dinner we talked about it. I asked the boys, I said, okay, here's a sentence, guys. What is the... Let's see if we can find the main idea here in all of this. It's not easy sometimes being the pastor's kids. You get asked a bunch of questions at dinner at different points in the week, especially maybe Wednesday or Thursday, I think. Does that seem about right? Uh, so we worked at this, and we figured out the main idea is the first, verse, the first word of verse 3 and the first word of verse 4. What this is actually telling us happened is Jesus rose. He rose from supper. That's what this told us. Jesus got up from reclining at table. That's the basic thing we're told. Now, we know what he's getting up to do. What's he about to do? He's getting up so that he can wash their feet. That's why he's getting up. But notice, though, what this sentence tells us about his getting up. It tells us about aspects of his motivation. Just like verse 1 did, but with even more detail. His getting up sprang from his knowledge, first, that the Father had given all things into his hands. You see that? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, dot, 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 rose from the table, got up from supper. Think about how that informs what is going on in Jesus' mind that night. We know he is going to deal with grief and sorrow as he approaches the cross. There is no doubt about that. He'll say in Matthew 26, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. But right now, what is on his mind that motivates his actions is his awareness that his mission is about to be accomplished. This is right on the eve of the arrest and crucifixion. We hear that in this sentence, don't we? The betrayal has already begun. 
And yet what is occupying Christ's mind here is not his death itself. What's motivating him is not fear or anxiety at all. In his mind that's moving him here is the knowledge of the absolute certainty of his accomplishment. Knowing that all things have been given by the Father into his hands. His betrayer is already at work and yet Jesus acts out of absolute confidence in his victory. The path to obedience, to success in his mission, has been made certain by the Father. I mean, Christ has come for what purpose? He's come to go to the cross. And he has been given the greenest green light that ever there could be. So this part of the sentence simply tells us that Jesus is mindful here of the certainty of his upcoming accomplishment. And because what he's come to do is certainly to be accomplished, he is therefore mindful, again in this sentence, as we saw in the first, that that means he is about to return to where he had come from. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. See, the point of this whole second sentence is that what motivates him is his awareness that his time on earth with his disciples is short. And it's short not because he is about to be betrayed, although that's its own instrument in God's plan. It's short because he's about to win. He's about to win. And we put that with the first sentence. He has loved them to the very end. And on this day, he knows his time with them is short. And so what did he do? He got up. He rose from supper. Jesus' love for them means he wants them to be provided for. And specifically, he wants them to be prepared for his departure. We're going to see a lot in these upcoming weeks. They are not yet prepared for him to leave. He loves them. He wants to prepare them. And that's going to mean a lot of things. It's going to mean informing them, assuring them, Comforting them, commanding them. We've got five full chapters of what Christ has in mind in getting up to prepare them for his departure. But the question for us this morning is how does he start this whole thing off? He wants to love them by preparing them. So how does he start? That leads us to our second point this morning. Jesus starts the whole thing with a picture. And it's a picture that they were most certainly not expecting. So move now with me to verse 4. We see the love that John has dramatically described with these elaborate sentences. Jesus now dramatically portrays. Verse 4. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Stop there. Imagine the scene with me for a moment. Doubtless you have imagined it before. This is a very famous account, right? Imagine it one more time. It says that he laid aside his outer garments, plural. There is a debate because you can use that plural word to just refer to the outer 
garment sometimes. So we're, we're unsure if we're supposed to take this to mean several garments or just the outer cloak. I wanted to share with you, uh, Leon Morris gives a very helpful description here, but I share it with you because um, of the, the conclusion he draws. He's going to give you his thoughts here as well. He says, though the word, the word for garments there, though the word is plural, it is possible that a single garment is meant. But it seems more likely that we should take the plural seriously, because elsewhere, John uses the singular for one outer garment and the plural for multiple garments. If it has the same meaning here as in the later passages, then what that tells us is that Jesus stripped down to a loincloth just like a slave. Just like a slave. He gets up, he removes his outer garments, he puts on a towel. This is a specific kind of towel called a lention. It's an unusually long towel for a particular purpose. This is a long towel so that you can wear it, you can tie it around you, freeing up your hands for work, and yet even as it's tied on you, it's long enough that you can use it to dry. This is the purpose of this towel. You're still hearing very much a slave context aren't you? He's dressed the part, and then he begins the work of washing their feet. And I can only imagine the looks on the disciples' faces, dumbfounded as they are silent until he gets to Peter. We have record of long-standing Jewish debates, even in their own time, about propriety uh, and and, uh, appropriate conduct. Uh, It was debated in their legal systems whether it should even be allowed for masters to require their slaves to wash other people's feet. Some of them believed you shouldn't be allowed to require your slave to wash the feet of other people. That shows you how distasteful this is to them. This is the lowest form of service. Should a slave even have to do this? So our Lord pauses the meal, rises from it, dresses like a slave, performs the most menial act of service possible. And he did it because knowing his time was short with them, he wanted to equip and prepare them. What does this tell us about the needs that he sees in them? The needs that he is addressing with this picture. How does this equip them? We know it does. Our Lord has never engaged in anything that he has not succeeded in. But what is his purpose here? What's his purpose for them? And remember, because he's preparing them for his departure. He hasn't yet returned. So we're right to understand that he is equipping us by this picture as we see it. What was their need that held this priority in his mind and was met with this particular picture? And we can actually, ironically, we can gain insight into that answer by hearing Peter's misunderstanding. Blessed Peter, he's so helpful to us. We come to verse 6 and we see that regarding this act of love from our Lord, Peter dramatically misunderstands it. In fact, what we're going to see here is that Christ uses this picture to address multiple needs, to teach multiple things. The most explicit one in the text is the application we'll see next week in verses 12 to 20. Because in verse 15, he tells them outright that he has given them an example with this. An example for them to follow. 
But please do not move down there in your mind this morning. Because even before that, meaning is brought out of this picture because of Peter's misunderstanding. Look with me verse at, at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. It's classic Peter, right? It's almost as bad. It's not as bad. It's almost as bad as the time that he took Jesus aside in Mark chapter 8 and rebuked him for saying that he was going to have to die. Remember that? Here, he simply cannot stomach the visual of what is going on as his Lord is interacting with him like this. And in a sense, there, we can sympathize, right? We can even see some pieces of nobility in his great concern for the honor of his Lord and for the right place of his Lord before him. We understand that. The problem is there are realities at play here that Peter does not understand. It's exactly what Jesus tells him. What I am doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now notice, Jesus does not specify when this understanding is going to come. And I would suggest to you that he is not referring there to the next paragraph. I think what he's referring to is something more than that explanation he's about to give them right there. I think he's referring to the insight and illumination that the Holy Spirit is going to give to the disciples later after Christ is raised. And I think that because this is, this is something that has come up at a number of points and will in John's Gospel. Here are a few of these places. You don't have to turn to these. Uh, but some of them we've already seen. So John 2.21 said he, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Remember he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. It says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Something brings their, back, their mind back to that, and they remember it. John 12, 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. Notice what he's going to tell them here shortly. John 14, 26, he will tell them this. The Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 16, 12, I have, still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. You hear he's telling them over and over, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm planting seeds, disciples, that I know you cannot receive or understand right now, but I'm not worried. Because God's plan is a perfect one. It's a single plan. And when the Spirit comes, He will bring your mind back to these things. Not just for you to remember that they happened, but for you to understand their significance. So when you hear in John 2 in those places, when He was raised, His disciples remembered that. Just realize the one who causes them to remember is the Spirit. And they don't just remember, they begin to discern the meaning behind what Christ was doing. He says to them here, he says to Peter here, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but after these things, you will understand. Peter is a confident man. 
He's quite confident that there is nothing that could be explained to him that could possibly change how inappropriate this is. And so he says in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. Why can't I read that without having to take a drink? I don't know what my problem is. Now, this, this statement he makes is huge. And it's the crux for the rest of what we're going to see this morning. Because that statement sparks the presentation of two different lessons that Jesus draws out here of this foot washing. The first one is in verse 8. And what, what Jesus does is he points Peter immediately to the cross. Look at his reply in verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And what has our Lord just done? He's clearly finished talking literally directly about the foot washing, isn't he? He's clearly forcing Peter to some kind of a reality that goes beyond the foot washing right then. And we can tell that because the foot washing is not what will give them a share with Christ. If you're unsure about that, just notice further down, Judas Iscariot is getting his feet washed in this whole event. What, what Christ is telling Peter is this. He's saying, Peter, if it's a problem for you to humbly present me with the dishonor of your dirty feet, then you have a real problem. Because there's a washing away of shame and guilt without which you will have no share with me. And if you were dead set against allowing me to stoop to serve you, then in your shame and guilt, you will remain. What equips Peter in this picture is the idea that he didn't just need Jesus' leadership. He needed Jesus' service. This is what he needs to understand. He needs Jesus' sacrifice on his behalf. So long as he thinks that service and sacrifice are beneath his Lord, he does not and cannot understand Jesus' divine mission. Can he? And in these moments, they can't. They cannot fathom these realities of Christ, their Lord, humbling, bowing low, sacrificing of himself. These are categories that they do not yet have in their mind. Let me share a couple of places from Mark chapter 9, which happened relatively in this same general vicinity of their time with him. You don't have to turn to these either. Mark 9, 9 is one, right after the transfiguration. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. What could he mean? This is deep stuff. I wonder what he... Further down in the chapter, verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, <laughs> saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him, what could he mean? There's no, obviously it's not, he's not speaking literally. What great symbolic thing is he, 
These are incomprehensible notions to them of Jesus, their Lord, dying. Of Jesus, their Lord, being dishonored, stooping. They have need of some new categories if they are going to be able to endure what is coming. And what we're finding here is that our Lord is gently introducing these categories to them here. Not only by visually upending their expectations about his work, but now also by, in fact, foreshadowing the cross itself. As he intimates to Peter that there is dirty work for Jesus to do for Peter, without which they can't be with him at all. You want a share with me? I must get dirty. And if you do not allow me to do that for you, you have no share with me. And Peter responds like Peter would respond. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. It's more go big or go home with Peter. And it is so interesting how Jesus reacts to this. He, he uses this Peter hyperbole to make yet another application of the foot washing. This is the second lesson that Jesus draws out of this, and we see it in verse 10. Again, verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. It is so important to recognize that this is a different lesson than the one that Jesus drew out at first. In verse 8, the foot washing was used actually to symbolize the cross itself. Peter, you don't want me to wash your feet. If, if I don't wash you, you have no, no share with me. But that's not what's happening here. He says in verse 10, you are already clean. All you need is for your feet to be washed. You see, Peter's enthusiastic response opens up the opportunity to turn the foot washing into a different point now altogether. And if you think about it, it is actually an amazing example of just what a teacher our Lord was. What is it like for God to come and dwell among us and teach us? Well, it's like this. There is nothing that he can be uh, confronted with in the course of his teaching that he can't just turn on a dime and give another crucial point that they need right in that second. This is, this is how he teaches. It's unbelievable. And so what is this second application then that he's making from the foot washing? Well, it's this. It's that true cleansing that Jesus provides is in fact a once-for-all act. Now that does not mean, and it won't mean, that in life there are not going to be for us who have been washed by Jesus, continued contact with uncleanness because of indwelling sin. And thus, it doesn't mean that there won't be an ongoing dependence on the work of Jesus in that sense to wash. We still need, don't we, as Christians, to come to him in our lives, confessing sin, pursuing cleansing. He is at work in us, sanctifying us progressively. We still need our feet washed in that way. And yet, as an, in, as an enduring and unending status before the throne of God, those who belong to Christ are clean. 
They need those categories. My friends, we need those categories. It is very easy for us to fail to live in the existence of these categories. He's giving them on that night. Because we're grieved by our sin. But he is reminding us here, if I have washed you, you are clean. You have no need for another bathing. You're clean. What made them clean? He says to them right then, you are clean. They are clean because they have come to Christ in trust. They have received his word. How often have we heard that in this, in this study? They've not just heard the word of Christ. They heard his word. They heard in it the voice of God, and they received his word as what it truly was. Not the voice of man, but the voice of God himself. They've trusted in Jesus savingly. Is this the third time for me to go through a list of passages? I think it is. Listen to these. John 1.11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, comma, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 13.20. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Well, listen to this. John 15.3. Already you are clean. He's speaking to these disciples. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Well, what did Ryan read to us from Ephesians 5 earlier? How does it describe the work of Christ in our lives? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Over and over, the scriptures tie... God's work in renewing and giving us life to our receipt and, and trust in the word that has been given. We could keep going. James 1.21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and what instead? And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. My goodness. This is the call. Hear the word of Christ, and receive it. And you are clean. They're clean, verse 10, because they've heard his word and have received it as what it really is, as the word of God himself. It's exactly what Paul thanks God for about the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 2, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Peter says to him, Lord, wash my head and my hands. Then Jesus says to him, if you have received my word, you have received the one who sent me. You are clean. It doesn't mean that you don't continue to need me constantly. It doesn't mean that there won't be ongoing sanctification for you to come to me for. And it will still be like dirty feet. Notice, you're still going to be in your life humbled by the shame that I will know about and will be at work against in your life by my spirit. But Peter, those whom I have made clean are clean. It is a separate point from the one he made in verse 8. If we don't recognize that, this is going to confuse us, what he says in verse 10. But if we do recognize it, and what we get is we get the fullness of the, the, the riches 
of what Jesus' instruction is providing for them here. As he creates for them a number of categories that he's going to continue to fill as we go on in this study. Now in closing, in trying to sort of summarize and think about what we've seen in this text, in these verses, we could say that one thing we come away from God's word here this morning with is a warning. We have been warned by this interaction between Jesus and Peter that we have seen. And the warning is this. If thinking about how Jesus washed his disciples' feet leads us only to think about its example to us in serving each other, then we have failed to hear what Christ said to Peter. We jumped right over it into the next passage. And thus we have failed to learn everything he taught us with this action of washing his disciples' feet. The call to humble service is there, no doubt. And in fact, that'll be the focus of our study next week. But before Jesus called on us to wash each other's feet, he called on us to understand how God's grace came to us. My friends, we cannot do the second rightly without a mindset situated in the first. And in fact, none of it has any value to us without the reality of the first. We can learn from Jesus' words. We can even receive an example from him. But if he does not die for us, if he does not lay down his life and pour out his blood at Calvary for us, we cannot and will never escape the righteous judgment of God. An easy way to see what we've seen here is to say that our dependence upon the cross is total. And there is no better picture of that, perhaps, than the reminder we get from verse 11. The reminder that one of those experiencing all of this was none other than Judas himself. Judas Iscariot learned at the feet of Jesus, followed him around, and here even received a symbol that symbolizes the cross's washing as Jesus washed his feet. But a symbol with no substance, no reality behind it, is useless. What was missing? The whole way through, Judas never entrusted himself to his Lord in humility. He never received the cleansing that God grants to those who have, by his grace, come to receive the word concerning his son. He never entrusted himself to Jesus. When it comes to being qualified to stand in God's presence, we cannot wash ourselves. There's a great kid's book. I think it was R.C. Sproul's book, The Priest with Dirty, the priest with dirty Clothes is what it was called. It's all about this desperate need to be rightly robed and cleaned to be in the presence of the king and the horror and despair that it comes to us when we realize I can't do it. I can't get the stains off. There is a washing we require that we cannot procure for ourselves. But such is the washing of the word by Jesus, 
Such is the washing as his blood cleanses and purifies that those who are washed by him are forever clean. And it becomes not only their greatest and only hope, it becomes their very glory. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. This morning we are led to value as our greatest gift the cleansing brought to us by our Lord's sacrificial death. And what a joyous thought to think that for eternity, for eternity, will his people thank and praise him. Would you pray with me? Father, you humble us as your Holy Spirit leads our thoughts to your Son and to his cross. We remember what you have told us, that you set yourself against the proud and you give grace to the humble. We ask you this morning, Father, give us, give us Peter's zeal for the glory of your Son but Lord, give us humility to receive with gratitude his self-sacrifice. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning for your willingness to stoop so low in your love for us. And we rejoice that it is finished. We rejoice that you are now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven that you are the possessor of all glory and honor. We ask you together this morning, make us eager, O oh God, to show and share with others the love that we have been given in Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.